Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and geopolitics. SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews we've been doing during the work from home period in lieu of our global conference series. And just like we do at our SALT conferences, our goal is, is twofold, is to provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts across those disciplines that we listed, as well as provide uh, a platform for big world-changing ideas. And, and that is not embodied more than by our guest today, Dr. Eric Daimler, uh, an expert in artificial intelligence. Uh, Dr. Daimler is a leading authority in robotics and AI with over 20 years of experience as an entrepreneur, investor, technologist, and policymaker. Uh, he served under the Obama administration as the Presidential Innovation Fellow for AI and Robotics in the Executive Office of the President as the sole authority driving the agenda for U.S. leadership in research, commercialization, and public adoption of AI and robotics. He serves on the boards of Wellways, uh, Petum, the largest AI investment by SoftBank's Vision Fund. His newest venture, Connexus, is a groundbreaking solution for what is perhaps today's biggest information technology problem, which is data deluge. Uh, as a founder and CEO of Connexus, Eric is leading the CQ, is leading uh, a leading CQL patent pending platform founded upon uh, category theory, a revolution in mathematics uh, to help companies manage the overwhelming challenge of data integration and migration. He served as the assistant professor and assistant dean at Carnegie Mellon School of Computer Science, uh, where he founded the university's entrepreneurial management program and helped to launch Carnegie Mellon's Silicon Valley campus. He studied at the University of Washington, Seattle, Stanford University, and Carnegie Mellon University, where he earned his PhD in computer science. A reminder, if you have any questions for Dr. Daimler during today's talk, enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And now I'll turn it over to Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, as well as the chairman of SALT uh, to conduct today's interview. Doctor, uh, gr great to be with you. Uh, we had Kaifu Lee, uh, a, a month or two back uh, talking about AI and people in our industry, frankly, some of them are just a little confused about it. And there's a whole big bandwidth of AI uh, from let's say artificial intelligence, machine learning and robotics. And so I was wondering how you, sir, how do you personally define AI? Yeah, well, uh, thank you, Anthony, uh, for having me. It's good to, uh, to good to be here as part of your uh, terrific uh, video series. Uh, Kai, you know, Kai Fu Lee is a, a friend of mine, and, and uh, we actually were in the same program uh, at Carnegie Mellon University. And so I, I, I like him, I like his work, I, I like his book, AI Superpowers. I, I find that the way in which people think about AI in these contexts uh, uh, can often resemble how I would think about it as an AI researcher. You know, I, I've been doing AI for 30 years in various capacities. Uh, uh, but when I was an AI researcher, kind of day to day, I would think about AI as a learning system, and a subset of which is machine learning. Uh, many people have heard of that. And then a subset of machine learning is deep learning, uh, often popularized by the company DeepMind. So DeepMind uh, uh, and deep learning is a subset of machine learning, which is a subset of AI. So there are non-machine learning AIs, which is uh, semantic AI. That, that level of being pedantic about AI isn't terribly helpful, I find, for the people that are not day-to-day -day AI researchers. 
what, what I like to do, and probably what I'll be doing for the rest of my life, is, is trying to bring people into the conversation about AI. So they kind of, they kind of purchase a way to, to, to grab on to the conversation about what it is. And how I do that is, is talking about AI as a system. Uh, as the totality of a deployment, but from sensing to planning to acting and then learning from that experience. So if, if we go to sensing, we would think that I'm going to collect data. Uh, this could be like the billion points of a uh, internet of things. Uh, so I could, this could be data, the LIDAR on top of my car. This could be the air quality in my room. Uh, I'm going to collect data. That then moves across a network where it then goes into planning, processing, thinking. And, and that's the traditional way people might think of, of AI. So if, I'm, if I look out in these images and I say, well, is that a crosswalk? Is that a kid at a crosswalk? Then it goes into planning and I make a determination with what degree of confidence is that a, a kid at a crosswalk and how, how confident do I think of it? And then I have acting, right? Sensing, planning, and then acting. I act on that experience to say, well, should I slow down the car? How abruptly? Or should I have a sharp left turn of the car? Or should I wait until I collect more information Then it loops back on the experience? So since plan act, learn from the experience. That's how I think about the system uh, of AI as a useful definition for citizens and policymakers. Okay, it's very good. It's very helpful. You're, you're the CEO of Connexus. You've got great signage right now. And I just want to tell you, I'm very proud of you, sir, because you're beating John Darcy and Room Raider. I'm obviously in a hostage situation. So if I, if I blink twice, call the FBI for me. But Darcy has all those fake objects in his room there. But you're, you're, you're winning trying on Room my Raider. Best. Trying my best. Connexus. Uh, uh, what does Connexus do? You're the CEO of the company and the founder. How would you describe it to our listeners and viewers? Yeah, and first of all, thanks for the compliments of the room. I was alerted to this when in the COVID crisis, a new Twitter handle came up. I think it's called something like Rate My Room. And so yeah. you'll see people like us going on that. And, and people he, gave me, he gave me one-tenth of a Scaramucci for my current environment, <laughs> which is one out of 11. Okay, it hurt my feelings. I have to tell you that because I'm, you'll, you'll figure out by the end of this, I'm very shy. I'm a little bit introverted and I'm somewhat sensitive. I'm very thin-skinned, so. That's your hurt, reputation. Yeah, well yes. aware. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So go ahead, sir. What is what is the what is Connexus do? Yeah, Connexus. So what what Connexus does is we will guarantee data and models in order to be making better decisions. That's what we do. That's obviously very important in, in this, these AI deployments. But that's what we do. You know. So we are we're an MIT spin out. And we like to think of ourselves as the cartography of the 21st century. You know, so how, how maps were made, how they used to be made, is, is we would send a ship out. Uh, that ship may hit a rock uh, and then go to the bottom of the sea. Then we would send another ship out, and it wouldn't hit that rock because we made a map of that rock, but it might hit another rock. And this trial and error approach resulted in thousands of ships at the bottom of the sea. You know, that happens today in... Uh, our scientific process and in the deployments of AI. You know, early on in Amazon's history, they would be trial and erroring their logistic systems. It happens today in, in other domains of, of AI. They, and today, when I get a dumbbell shipped from Amazon in 48 hours, I may not care about their trial and error approach to shipping or logistics, but in high consequence contexts, I really do care. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm sending a commercial jetliner into the sky, if I'm managing a, a utility system, if I'm developing a COVID vaccine, 
these trial and error approaches can cost real lives. So that's what Conexus does, is we work to guarantee the data and the models in the deployment of these systems. Well, it, 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 it sounds very compelling. So who's your typical customer then? You don't have to give us a name of a customer, but what, who, who would call you up and say, okay, I would like this information? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, so I can, I can give you a, an example where you know, we're working with a, a, a large logistics company uh, to, to find out where their personal protective equipment is. So I, I didn't know how large some of these logistics companies could be. One, one was tens of thousands of employees and their client was also tens of thousands of employees. And this client uh, of our client had these ships around the world. Each one of these ships had tens of thousands of containers, the Connex boxes, shipping containers. Inside of those were personal protective equipment, PPE. Where in the world the PPE is for our client or our client's client might seem like an easy question to answer in the age where I could get a dumbbell ship from Amazon in two days. But it's actually surprisingly hard. And it could take hours, if not days, to come up with this answer of transferring uh, data across these massive systems. That's what we work to do right now is make these systems more agile, more responsive to address where is my personal protective equipment and should it go to Seoul or Houston or, or, or Rome uh, uh, much more quickly than, than how classic approaches would, uh, would allow. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're making the economy more efficient. You're saving costs, saving energy. It's good for yeah. the environment. Uh, can, can Nexus category theory? It's a game changer. Explain to people what that is, what it means, and why is it a game changer? Yeah. So we are based on uh, innovations in mathematics. This is just a, a, a fundamental basis for, for uh, the, the foundation of the firm. We're not the only ones doing it. We're just the leaders in expressing this with enterprise software. We're often used to these innovations in physics. Uh, they, these reach the popular imagination because they've kept uh, the continuity of Moore's law, these innovations in physics. We see them in faster chips. But what we're less appreciative of is these innovations in math, these discoveries in math that have enabled kind of transformations of our world. And this is even more foundational than the nature of, of physics. You know, the, the relational database system upon which Amazon does its business was funded, founded, powered by Oracle, who runs a big relational database management company, sure. that would have not been uh, able to be started in 1977 were it not for the discovery of relational algebra in 1970. So we have that new type of mathematics, categorical mathematics, category theory that powers a new way of thinking for the digital age. This will sweep away everything you know, Anthony, about math over the next 10 to 20 years. It's, it's a math more appropriate to the digital environment. The, you know, calculus, trigonometry, geometry, that is a math of our ancestors. It's, it's not inappropriate, it's just gonna become less appropriate, a little bit like Latin. You know, you and I are, not, are speaking in English, not Latin, and, and we won't really mention a Latin, except when it comes time to our bonus, et cetera. Uh, and so it's, those other maths will, will still exist, but they'll just become less important. And the math of the future, the math of the digital age, the math that'll sweep away everything else is category theory. Okay, and so if I had to describe it to my 20-year-old son, category theory yeah. is what exactly? How yeah, is it it's different the from trigonometry? And it's the math of equivalence. So the math of, of, of our ancestors is the math of, of rigid equality. 
So rigid equality works really well when you're building a factory and you have gears that need to interlace. When you're looking at a farm and you need to, they have, there's, there's, there's precise definitions of where a farm and ends. It's much less appropriate in a digital environment. The, the, the math of continuity is calculus in waves. The math of a digital environment is, 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 in, a, is in, in these relationships where things are, are fungible, where things are not exactly equal, but they could be related and where you need to be transforming a view from one view to another view. Right. So I'll give you an example uh, of this. So we're, we're working, one of the things Connexus does, my company, is we're working with some firms to come up with a COVID vaccine. And if we looked at a COVID vaccine, we see many, many drug databases that need to be brought together for analysis. If we're bringing together more data for analysis, we find that they've been collected in different ways because they've been collected at different times. So I might see one drug database that, that said, do you have high blood pressure? Another drug study would say, what is your high blood pressure? What's your number? Another might say, hey, you have it. What's your medicine that you take? How much medicine do you take? The classic ways of doing this bring together that data and they just say, yes, you know, high blood pressure. That's based on the math and the systems and the, and the classic approaches. We have to bring it together in a way that maintains the fidelity for better analysis and better decisions to come up with vaccines that are more effective uh, and faster, faster to market. All right, so very, it's a very good description. Where do you think AI is going? Uh, do you have a personal philosophy or an opinion on that? Obviously, we have dystopian visions. Elon Musk has said, you know, this could end up like the Matrix. Uh, Kai-Fu Lee was on the opposite side of the spectrum. He didn't think it was ever going to advance to the point of full-blown consciousness. Where are you yeah. on that spectrum in terms of uh, where, where the future is for AI? I have, I have many things to say uh, about this. this is, I'm kinda, I, I spent my time uh, working in the last administration kind of talking to congressmen about where, what AI is and you know, generally kind of how scared they should be about AI. And this, this, is, a, this is still a very useful uh, conversation to be had. You know, when, when we think about AI, and I remember you know, Kai-Fu Lee and I've talked about this a couple of times, we both look at this dystopia from the Terminator to a utopia, like it'll save all of our lives. As a, as a sort of lazy thinking. You know, those, those, that, those extremes just aren't terribly helpful because there's, a, there's a, just a multitude of expressions in between that we need to have a conversation about kind of as, a, uh, as a society. So uh, as I've said, I, I, I've been in AI for a long time in a lot of different ways, one of which was a venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road. And in that capacity as a venture capitalist, we had an adage, which is don't confuse a clear vision with a short time horizon, right? And people do this all the time. And so before I was born, you know, way back in the 60s, there was this cartoon called uh, The Jetsons. It's still entertaining, you, you can watch it today. And in that cartoon, there was this, uh, this robot that walked around and cleaned the house, did the dishes, vacuumed the floors, made the food. Uh, it was called Rosie the Robot. And so we had a clear vision back then, this is what we want. But you know, 50, 60 years later, we have a Roomba. That's all we have, a Roomba. And so you had a clear vision, but you, didn't, you would not want to have confused that with a short time horizon. And so I think today when people uh, uh, think of the fears or even the hopes of AI, they think and can reflect on Google Glass. You know, that was a disaster. I know what yeah. I want. It's very clear how cool it could be, but it's a horrible disaster. When I think of autonomous cars, 
we can think what we would like. I would like a sofa to be going down the street while I watch Netflix, right? But that is, is not going to happen next year. Elon Musk has mentioned for the last several years that next year we'll have a fully autonomous car in every situation, but it's not going to happen uh, next year. These, these, I, not to put you on the spot, but you can think, imagine in your head, when do you think fully autonomous cars first appeared in the, uh, on a public street in the United States? The answer is back when Reagan and Thatcher were in power. <laughs> in the early 80s, 1983, Carnegie Mellon University had vans. You know, they were big vans, but vans nonetheless, driving on public streets, stopping at stop signs. They were going five miles an hour, but it's just another indication of having a clear vision doesn't at all indicate that something's gonna happen soon. So the idea about general intelligence, this idea about, about uh, AI becoming conscious, I'll tell you the consensus is that's, that uh, isn't gonna happen in the next 10 to 20 years, if it will ever happen. My personal view is it will never happen because we don't even understand our own consciousness. You can do a thought experiment and I'll leave it at this. When you say, who's that thinking? And then you notice in your head, you're saying, Who, who's that thinking? We don't have enough understanding of our own consciousness to be able to recreate that consciousness in another, uh, in another entity, in a machine. So that's, that's my answer. These things actually move relatively slowly. What's distinct about this world is that things don't just have quick, quickly, they happen abruptly. That's the distinction people should think about with regard to artificial See, intelligence. When you, when you mentioned 1983, doctor, I wanted to ask you, how does Madonna look exactly the same as she did in 1983? <laughs> but since that's outside of your expertise, I'll ask Darcy about that indeed. later. Uh, so you, you, you did a great job of explaining the limitations. Um, but let's talk about application and talk about current application of what you're doing. What industries are going to be the ones that transform as a result of Connexus and a result of what you're working on right now? Yeah, this, uh, this is uh, something that we can talk about for AI in general. It, I, I often am, am uh, uh, caught saying that every business is an AI business. Every business is an artificial intelligence business. And, and that, that can shock people. But you know, what I mean by that is that physical manifestations of goods uh, have become increasingly commoditized over the last hundred years or so, you know, that 5% of us work on farms, a very small percentage of us work in factories, and I can buy the gear to run a farm or run a factory in a way that I couldn't a hundred years ago. We run more and more on data. And so uh, a friend of mine runs a, runs a company that does this uh, a sort of analysis for restaurants or companies, but I can, and I can give a context for that, but we think about where AI deployments uh, happen right now. AI deployments happen in very structured environments. An easy one is a children's game, tic-tac-toe. It's a very structured environment. AI can master tic-tac-toe. And it, you know, slightly more sophisticated is checkers and then chess. And then, and then there's this other more sophisticated board game called Go uh, that many of us are familiar with. It's a Chinese board game with stones on a big grid. And for all intents and purposes, that game was solved about a decade ago using that technique we talked about earlier, deep learning. That problem, just because it solved that, that solution, doesn't mean that every problem now exists around algorithms, right? It, that we have these sort of decisions to make day to day. So back to my friend, he goes into companies looking for uh, uh, ways in which he can solve these ordinary problems in a cafe in his particular instance. And the conclusion is no one wants to buy the last croissant. 
So, so it may seem counterintuitive to have this highfalutin technologist you know, go through such a banal conclusion, but the idea is that for whatever reason, uh, people want to buy every croissant to the last one. So even that you might think intuitively that you want to run out of croissants when the store ends. Instead, he said, well, we're going to not call that food waste. We're going to call that last croissant making every other customer comfortable until that last croissant. So this is proprietary data now. It's proprietary data to that particular restaurant, that particular cupcake retailer or factory. So that, that acquisition of data, that processing of data, and that execution of data is proprietary information to that cupcake factory. And that has more in common with an AI business than may initially appear on its face. Oh, it's, a, it's a great example, and it's a good segue into my next question. Uh, Steve Schwartzman, uh, the CEO of Blackstone, is saying to people that are suggesting that businesses should increase their inventory in the event that there are future pandemics and future supply chain disruptions. Uh, what do you think of that? Is that a good idea for businesses? Is that something that's going to weigh, weigh them down and make them carry too much costs on their inventory and balance sheets? Yeah, this, that, I remember his statement and that, that drives me nuts uh, because it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a problem about a, a, um, the, the COVID crisis is that we couldn't have predicted it. You know, and so how can you possibly have predicted something or plan for something that could not have been predicted? And for well, people I, I, just to carry, I, I've got a lot of my investors that are on this call. I want you to say that like seven more times. Of course, you couldn't predict it. That's why, <laughs> so you know, that's why we're good fundamental investors. If you get caught, you got to write it out. You got to be patient. But go ahead, yeah. sir. I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt. No, it's a, it's, it's exactly right. And how you'd respond isn't by having more bloated inventory or, or having now a thousand alternatives because you actually don't know. Uh, what the next problem is going to be. You're, you're going to plan for the last war is the criticism that we get in government to the Defense Department. What's far, far more powerful is to be a quick learner and be adaptable. That's where my firm connects us. That's where we work with our company. So the, the logistics company we worked with earlier, we can't plan for every possible eventuality. But what we, we can plan for is having better visibility better capital goods planning, better labor planning, and then more supplier options so that we can quickly respond to whatever problem may appear in whatever time frame. It's about responsiveness, it's about flexibility, and it's about adaptability. Okay, well, we're getting a, a ton of questions that are coming into our chat room, so I'm gonna turn it over to John to have him uh, ask you some of these questions, but I, I wanna come back in a moment, but go, but go ahead, John. I, I see the questions piling up. Yeah, there's a question about, you know, we mentioned that you worked as the Presidential Innovation Fellow uh, for AI and Robotics in the Obama White House. How did that position come about? Uh, what was it like day to day? What were you really working on there? And then how do you think in general we do as a government uh, you know, driving research into AI and robotics? I know that uh, places like China are much more aggressive in, in pushing into those areas. How are we doing Talk a little bit about your work while you were in the White House. Right. So um, I, I will first say it was a privilege. Uh, uh, it was a privilege to be you know, working in the Obama administration. And it was actually just a privilege to be working in the federal government. I had a, an appreciation for the work that people do within the federal government. And I was very impressed with uh, 
the people with whom had I, I had worked. I mostly interacted with the people in the Defense Department. Uh, I, I got a little challenge going from the work I did with Ash Carter. Uh, I, I, I flew on a plane with, um, uh, uh, with Ray Mabus, and, and uh, in Air Force One is as cool as you think it is. Um, but it, so the job and the people are, are fantastic. Uh, uh, see Darcy's smiling right now, Doc, because I have flown on Air Force One. See that, Anthony? I see Anthony, laughing, I think okay? worked. I was only the federal there for government for a couple back, weeks, but I had three trips on Air Force <laughs> One. Okay, I didn't mean to interrupt your your stream and your thought there, but Darcy, you're lucky that we're not in the same room together. You get smacked right now. <laughs> Okay, keep going, Doc. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> so, so it's as cool as you I think it is. Air Force the One fantastic. is as cool as you think it is. And Darcy, you haven't flown on Air Force One. I just wanted to point that out to everybody. <laughs> Go ahead, Doc. So the, um, the work we did, the work that I did, was in the coordination between uh, what the president wanted to do from the executive office to the rest of the, the executive branches, whether it was state or defense uh, or treasury or health and human services. And they would all have their different uses for AI and obviously the different uses for robotics. We would come to try to conceptualize the uh, a framework under which we could be going down the same path. I mean, this is this is both a Republican and a Democratic talking point that, that shouldn't be politicized. And I'm kind of fortunate that this one area seems to not have been in the new administration because we are trying to make the allocation of our resources uh, more effective for the American people uh, and and maintain American leadership. So that's that was my objective and was my day to day work. Uh, and and I hope I get the opportunity to uh, to do it again. What I uh, think about policy is that, uh, number one, we need to engage in this conversation. You know, it's not enough to sit back and rea react to whatever technology exists. We actually have to educate ourselves. You know, as systems have become more complex over the past 50 years, we have become more educated than our parents and our, certainly our grandparents about the technologies in our world. We need to do the same with AI because whether we like it or not, there are a million programmers out in the world codifying our human values into software in ways we may not like. So we need to become educated so we can be part of that conversation. Another part of policy that I recommend is that we have circuit breakers, you know, that these systems become automated in ways that we may not appreciate. I, I may not want that my Instagram account and my liking of a picture of a hamburger to then somehow go through a sequence of algorithms that then affects my life insurance policy because somebody thinks I'm now gonna have uh, high cholesterol or what have you. And that, that can happen, that, that sequence of behavior. So circuit breakers are important and related to that, but distinct, we should have human auditors on AI overlaying the black boxes that are there. There are tragic stories around black box criminal justice sentencing systems as AI. I, I don't like that. I wouldn't want to be sentenced by a black box. I want to be talking to human beings. I want to make sure the decisions represent human values. So those are the three ways I think we need to be involved in policy, whether we are actually public officials or whether we are citizens or business people. So going to the pandemic for a moment, we have a question about, we actually had a very interesting uh, panel a couple of weeks ago on health tech and about how the, the massive amounts of data we have and our new ability to process that data using AI and machine learning and things is helping us in areas like radiology, oncology. As it relates to the pandemic, how can you know, a firm like Conexus leveraging AI tools and data help speed up the race to find a vaccine and generally help us confront you know, pandemics going forward? 
Yeah. Uh, so we, as, as I said earlier, we are working with companies to detect where uh, personal protective equipment is in the world and help bring effectiveness uh, and agility to our logistics and shipping systems. And this is a global problem that will benefit our economy uh, into, into the distant future. And we're also working with companies to come up with a COVID vaccine. So the way we do that is we work to guarantee data and guarantee the integrity of the models. So since the, uh, the COVID crisis, some 3,000 scientific papers have been published. A couple of hundred of these papers had to have been thrown out because this one lab at Imperial College London was found to have had a misinterpretation of their data, some corrupted data, essentially. You know, the way we talked about normalizing data and bringing data together has found its way into our Centers for Disease Control. And, and this feels almost criminal to me that, that the Centers for Disease Control, these are the experts in, in the United States that, to which we give a lot of resources and, and, and give a lot of, of, of credibility, they conflated the idea of a positive test for a virus versus a positive test for an antibodies. And they just merged them and say, positive test. And this, this speaks to a, a kind of a lack of numeracy, you know, literacy and numbers, liter literacy and math. The point of taking math isn't to learn uh, a calculus in the past or to learn category theory today. It's, it's the point to become literate with these numbers so you don't have these sort of confusions. But even among the scientifically literate, you have to depend on the integrity of the models and the data given to you. And this is what failed this lab at Imperial College London. So many, many different studies, hundreds in this particular case had to have been thrown out. That may not seem terribly tragic until you realize the consequences as a vaccine. It costs time, it costs money, but it, in this case, since we're developing a vaccine, it literally costs lives. So that's what my firm's willing to, uh, looking to, helping to, uh, shorten and bring effectiveness to. So going back to government policy for a moment, we have a question about, again, what the United States needs to do to ensure that AI research and development capabilities don't fall behind China. You, we have a centrally planned government. They have an ability to make long-term bets and to drive investment into certain areas that they think are, are super important strategically long-term. We maybe have lost a little bit of sight of that in the United States, uh, you know, just given our political cycles. What do we need to do? Should we be more focused on U.S. government policy regarding AI development uh, to ensure that we remain either ahead or competitive with someone like China? Yeah, I, uh, I think there's, there's a lot to say here. Uh, and there's a lot to say here that doesn't just involve technology. Uh, you know, I, it pained me to have been in uh, my, I, I remember back when I was in my, my, my PhD program and I would be around foreign nationals that wanted to stay in the United States, uh, but we forced them back to their home countries. You know, they wanted to be contributing to the research in the U.S. We paid to train them, uh, but then we would force them back. And, uh, you know, I would have been the person with whom they were competing for a job, and I'm fine about, with doing that, but we, we, forced them, we forced them back. And I think that's, that's tragic because it impairs uh, American leadership. I obviously think that we could multiply by an order of magnitude the funding of research overall into these these domains. But I, I, I'll say two things that are very important for the listeners is that besides the funding, besides the immigration, is that we need to be engaged in the conversation so that we know how to deploy the technology. You know, uh, you know my friend, Dr. Kai-Fu Lee, will often talk about data and China being the superpower of data. And that's fine. 
but that only goes so far because the winner will not just be in the in the accumulation of data. I mean, that where do, if that was true, where would that leave France or Brazil or or Germany? You know, as a as a, a second class citizen, no. They, it's in the implementation, it's in the use of AI that will, that will have a lot of power. You know, we need to be looking at this, as I will say, as a system, the totality of an AI system. And we have an advantage as a, as a free country and as Western democracies to be collaborating with each other on the acquisition of data, the processing of that data with, with guaranteed integrity, the, the analysis of the data and the execution of that data. I would invite people to look at this as a totality of a system in order to maintain American leadership, both, both commercially and militarily. I want to move on to robotics for a moment. We talked a lot about AI. Robotics is you know, very closely related to AI, but we haven't dived so much into it. So a question came in from the audience. What are your thoughts about the increase in collaborative robot adoption in reaction to an over-dependency on human labor post-COVID? Sort of the notion that uh, if we're if we're going to expect that there's going to be pandemics and disruptions like we've seen with COVID, are are we in danger of companies moving towards a more robotics-driven workforce uh, that has a little bit more flexibility, like an accordion, uh, depending on economic conditions? Yeah, you know, this came often uh, in conversations when I was talking to uh, uh, people, representatives in Congress, and and my answer always was. We don't automate what humans fundamentally want to do. You know, we, we, can, we have machines that can do a lot of things, but if we still want to do them, we can still do them. But many of the repetitive tasks for which we uh, have built robots are not something that people, uh, uh, when they're a child, say, gosh, I want to do that repetitive, uh, that repetitive project when I grow up. So I, I invite people to have, there's many different frameworks you, one might have about these technologies, including robots, but one is just as an automation tool, as an augmentation. And this is, this is how you can think about it. You are not gonna be replaced by a robot. You're gonna be replaced by a human using a robot. So you need to work with these new automation tools. Automation's been coming the last hundreds of years and learn how to work with these new tools and how it can have you be better at the job and then the larger job that needs to be done. There are, there are parts of this world that are fundamentally human. And that is often the part where we're interacting with each other, like now. It's the part where we're expressing empathy with each other, like now. And those are the sort of skills that probably need to be nurtured in order to have a longer term view of what your career is or what your children's career is. So we have a question, and this might not be in your wheelhouse, so feel free to say so, but about social policy uh, that will need to result, uh, need to be a result in a world where we have greater AI and robotics participation in our workforce and maybe a stripping out of some of those types of jobs that you mentioned, ones that you know, maybe are very cumbersome for human beings that get taken over by robots or machines you know, in terms of things like universal basic income or things of that nature, from a social perspective and a government perspective, what do we need to do in a world where technology replaces a lot of the human labor that has existed for hundreds, thousands of years? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think that it's useful to be 
contextualizing AI is something that happens abruptly and not quickly. And so what's changed here isn't that we're going to have automation and jobs are going to be replaced. It's that those sort of changes used to happen over a, a, a generation. But in this world, when they, when they happen, they'll happen abruptly. And so in the long haul trucking is often brought up as an example because that's actually the largest job in most states is long haul trucking. But if we look at that job, it's actually terrible. It's a terrible job. And many truckers don't even want to do that job because they're taken away from their friends and from their family. That job is actually likely to get better before it's replaced. I don't want to be encouraging my children to be going into long haul trucking, but it doesn't mean that that job is going away next year. I'll tell you how that's going to go. And this can give people a framework to think about AI and social policy and they can think, invent their own answers. Right now, driving an automated semi down the road is the easiest of problems, but it's still a hard problem. How a company is solving this locomation in Pittsburgh is they're going to have a Peloton of trucks, three trucks. The first truck is actually gonna have a human driver. The second truck will have drivers, but they'll be asleep. And then that truck will rotate and another driver will take over and then rotate and then take over. So instead of that truck driving 11 hours, which is the current maximum, the truck can drive 24 hours. So you can go out from Philadelphia to Kansas City and then back in a, in a time frame that allows you to keep the relationships with your friends or your family. That's transformational. And those sort of transformations will be available with AI before it replaces jobs. I invite people to think a little more broadly about this. You know, Dr. Kathleen Carley has invented uh, a way of thinking about AI that takes into account a cyber social system. So, you know, yesterday Twitter got hacked. Banks get hacked all the time or they get attempted with hacking all the time. So that has happened, that's been happening for a while. But what's now happening is instead of people just attacking my bank, they're attacking me to attack my bank. You know, is, is this thing fake? Is this thing real? That gets manipulated now in my newsfeed to continue my biases or what have you. But how, how will it now affect me if I see videos that may be fake? It takes a whole new dimension to criminal justice when eyewitness accounts may not be eyewitness accounts in the traditional sense. That's a new way of thinking about about AI, we have a physical manifest, a physical interaction with these technologies. And then lastly, it is outside of my wheelhouse to be talking about universal basic income, but I will say, uh, you know, personally, I'm not necessarily a fan. You know, that came out of Silicon Valley where a lot of people in, in my neighborhood, you know, think of these, these sort of uh, easy answers to these complex public, public policy problems. And I'd say that earned income tax credit is a much easier way, uh, is a much more direct way to address uh, uh, folks that have that have job displacements. I would say that early childhood education is another way to be addressing this. And I, I do not want to have a simple solution, my personal view, of universal basic income instead of addressing these more complex public policy answers to that very hard problem. So we have one last question before we let you go. And it's it was a good segue from what you just said about early childhood education. So that's a big part. We can put resources behind research and development, but we also need to create a culture where we, we incentivize young people to learn about AI and coding and, and robotics and things of that nature. I have three young kids. Anthony has uh, young kids as well. What should we be doing as a society to uh, teach our children about artificial intelligence? What type of resources should they be consuming? We, we obviously have a parent that's, that's posed this question, and it's interesting to me as well. But what should we be doing with our kids to, to drive interest and engagement in the world of AI and robotics? I, 
I don't know if I want to drive interest in, in robotics or AI, but I'd love for people to participate. There's an organization called First Robotics, which I'm a really big fan. This, this, organ, this nonprofit organization, and you can just uh, use your favorite search engine for First Robotics, I find to be fascinating because they were allowed for this context for children of various ages to get involved in a project that had a fundamentally technical outcome but required people in different capacities. What I loved about this, this particular uh, competition that I saw in Florida a couple years back was that women, girls in this case, girls were leading these teams of, of guys, kids, boys, in the development of robots that they were given a challenge to develop. And they were not only developing a technical acuity, but they were feeling comfortable that there was a place for them that wasn't just the, the nerd in the basement, which is how I started out. That the, and, and other people could say, well, I'm the marketer, I'm the fundraiser, I'm gonna go find us money from our neighborhood to help fund for our equipment. Well, I'm the leader, I'm the organizer to make sure that we are not just experimenting, but we're developing the product towards the solution of winning the competition. These, these little children were, were developing these sensibilities and I, I, I get goosebumps even just thinking about it uh, right now. I, I was so moved. That, that sort of real world interaction, giving people a place to think about the breadth of opportunity for them inside of these systems that's not just nerds in the basement. I think it's critically important. And I think math is a big deal. You know, you might say the more math, the better. But if I were to choose, I would say, let's put aside the geometry, the trigonometry, and really the calculus. Put it aside. It's going to become like Latin. And let's focus on probability and categorical mathematics, category theory. That's the math of the future. That's the math that we can use. That's the math you'll use in your day-to-day -day life. Well, that's fascinating. Dr. Daimler, I want to thank you, thank you for joining us. You were able to attend our SALT conference in Abu Dhabi uh, last December, where we had a great time. And I hope that we can host you at one of our future SALT conferences in person. But for now, uh, this will do. You talked about uh, how you're in San Francisco. That's why you're wearing a sweater in the summer. For a nerd in the basement, <laughs> you're very fashionable, and you have a very well-decorated basement. So. Uh, thanks again for joining <laughs> us. You. We really appreciate the I mean, time. you're calling him a nerd at the end of the thing. I mean, that's like the pot. He called himself a nerd. Flag. Give I mean, me a break. I mean, it's like, it's unbelievable. But, <laughs> but Doc, what I will say is that in the middle of a pandemic, you're helping people see through to where the opportunity is. We're about to embark upon a massive technological transformation again of our society, which is going to lead to unbridled economic growth and prosperity. Yes. And so we just have to see ourselves yeah. the other side of it. But uh, yes. in, in, in the meantime, I'm going to be auctioning off the silverware and stuff behind John Dorsey. <laughs> uh, but the truth of the matter is likely not actually to be silver. It's probably just plastic. But that'll be for another salt talk, Dr. Daimler. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, John. All right. All the best.